Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bolin. Scott, Happy New Year. Thank you, Ben, and Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. This is one of our first few shows of the new year, I guess, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. first official recording of the new year, maybe. That's true. That's true. As we're here in... How Stuff Works Legendary Audio Studio, which has been uh, getting some work done, too, I think. Yeah, we've got uh, new digs here, really. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, bigger studio with uh, uh, some soundproofing. You may hear some uh, fire engines go by occasionally, but not too <laughs> often, I hope, right? Right. Hopefully, they're driving and listening to the show as well. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so, yeah, as we're here in our continually improving studio for the first time this year, Doing our first podcast of the year, Scott, you and I thought, what better subject to begin than part two of Automotive First, right? Yeah. So, so we're beginning with like a, a, a catch up, I suppose. Maybe uh-huh. that's the way to say it, right? Cause, uh, I think we had a show that was called something like 10 unlikely autos that changed cars forever, something mm-hmm. like that, right? Right. Um, something similar to that. This is kind of like part two of that, a continuation that, that we wanted to get to because there's a lot more interesting stuff out there, I think, than what we Cover. Now, I know the first one was interesting. I shouldn't say it that way, maybe. But, right. But. but there's a lot more interesting stuff out there, I think, that we can cover today. Like, I mean, we've got a wide, wide selection of things like two-piece car bodies, crash mm-hmm. test dummies, mm-hmm. um, for the first gas station. First car crash. Yeah, this is automotive-related stuff, not necessarily the uh, the initial automotive trailblazers, the ones that, you know, changed something that everybody followed afterwards on, on right. every car after that. This is more like... All-encompassing automotive things. So world of auto, exactly, first. exactly. So, uh, yeah, for anyone who hasn't checked out our first episode on this, uh, which was ten unlikely autos that shaped the automotive world, or something like that. I don't know, similar. Yeah, the pieces are there. Just look uh, back through the through the uh, RSS. Feed. Oh yeah, just look one entry down or up. But uh, for anyone who hasn't checked that out, uh, never fear. These these episodes don't require listening to the first one. You should. It'll be more fun that way. But if there's something we don't mention in this episode, 
and you haven't heard our first episode, check it out because we may have touched on it. And just in case someone didn't listen to that first one, one thing that we want to get out of the way here is that some of these, you can quibble with some of these, right? You can say oh, that, yeah. you can say that, well, that's not the first because I happen to know my, uh, my great great grandfather was the first person to open a gas station in, uh, you know, wherever Pennsylvania. Right. And, uh, and a lot of these you'll find, you know, these automotive first lists have, uh, a little bit of uh, a fudge factor, I guess. In the, yeah, you know, let's call it wiggle room. Yeah, wiggle room is maybe better. That you know, it's not maybe this necessarily the first, but it's the first reported, or first recorded, or the first with a an asterisk because there's going to be some kind of qualifier that's thrown in there. Um, hopefully, not a whole lot of that in the in this list, but uh, we've got a, a lot to cover today. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned the part about qualifications and stories differing because you know how it is, man. It's just like with. A, a famous concert where the first mu- the this musician who later goes on to be world famous plays their first gig right in the basement of some coffee shop mm-hmm. and there were 15 people there but then you know 20 years later 400 people swear they were there the stories differ or they find out that the first gig was actually like at the uh, public library right. or something like yeah. that you know like it really wasn't the one in the in the basement so anyways we yeah, we, yeah. we rarely trust these lists of first but we're going to go ahead and read some of them you know these are kind of uh, as history knows it yes uh can i kick us off please do all right so the first joystick steering uh this is from a great list compiled by jalopnik uh user suggestions um this was uh, a joystick-controlled 1988 Saab 9000, and this came from, because, you know, Saab also made planes. They had these drive-by-wire planes, and the joystick controlled this, not just the steering, but also the brakes and the accelerator. Very Which, cool. I think that's a horrible idea, though, to have one stick controlling but, those things. But have you seen the little, the short little video clip of that person driving that car? Yeah, it looks amazing. That looks like so much fun. It, it looks, does. It truly looks like a video game. And this is one of those cars that was for sale, wasn't it? Yes. In, uh, uh, it was just last year, I believe, in January, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Saab Museum yep. sold all of its cars, right? Nail on the head, Scott. Yeah, Saab put its entire museum up for sale. And uh, if you were financially capable and maybe just nimble enough, quick-witted enough to jump on that, you could uh, have found some amazing automobiles. Yeah, it's pretty rare when a museum sells off its entire collection, and uh, that was a good opportunity for someone there. Um, okay, how about this? The first mass-produced car. Now, I think a lot of people are going to say Model T, right? Yeah. Well, not not the case, necessarily. The first mass-produced car, um, well, greater than 10 vehicles per week, anyways, okay. came from Oldsmobile. The 1901 Curve Dash Oldsmobile, or Curve Dash Olds, was mm-hmm. the first mass-produced car that, you know, again, that's 10 or more per week, so that's a very small production number. But sure. in 1901, that was really churning them out. Now, Ford gets credit because he gets credit for um, streamlining the production line. Uh, but it's something that uh, Ransom Olds had already been working on long, long before that. It's just he didn't have it perfected like Ford did. Right. And then, of course, I'm glad to qualify that, too, because pe- there may be people saying, well, 10 a week is not mass production enough for me. You know, that doesn't well, count as not mass m- modern day terms, but in 1901, yeah. come sure. On. I know, right? It's pretty good. Cause, uh, they're still all being handmade. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is one from a list that, uh, you compiled here, Scott, um, that we had talked about off air, which we actually originally wanted to do in our first episode. Yeah. It was supposed to be the end of that one. Yeah. And didn't have time. Um, the first fully functioning automobile. Now, the, the, it says the 1885 Benz Patent Motorwagen. Mm, okay. Uh, 
I would wonder about the phrase fully functioning. Fully functioning. I, yeah, I wonder. And, you know, the thing is, like, this whole question about what truly is an automobile, what's a car, oh, that yeah. goes back so far because, you know, I mean, I understand what you're saying about the patent wagon, and that gets the uh, that gets the credit as the first car always. Right. 1885, right? Now, but if you go back to the first car crash, now the first car crash, in some instances, I've seen Ooh. it listed as, get this, Ben, 1771. Now, do you know about that one? Yeah, the, yeah. This is a crazy thing. I mean, the steam wagon? Yeah, a uh, two-and-a-half-ton steam wagon built by Nicholas Joseph uh, Cugnot, I guess, yeah. C-U-G-N-O-T. Close enough. He's French. Yeah. Um, so it was – this is where it gets kind of sticky because it's the first self-propelled vehicle to be involved in a crash. Yeah, and it and it was unable to be steered, right? You couldn't steer this thing. <laughs> it's, it's a steam perfect. vehicle. It's like a wagon. You know, it's two, what do you say, two and a half tons? Yes. That's yes. a very, very heavy thing. But, I mean, do you, do you classify this unsteerable wagon as an automobile? I mean, really, because it's not necessarily a car. It's a it's a self-propelled vehicle, like you said. Hmm. But you couldn't steer it, and it crashed into this, this I guess it crashed straight into a wall um, in what? 1771. And what a surprise. It had to have been going very, very slow. I mean, I don't think this is a high-speed crash by any means, but mm. it probably took down the wall because of its weight. Yeah. Uh, and it just probably didn't stop if it went straight through. I'm sure. Um, but 1771 versus 1885, I mean, and they're calling that the first car crash in 1771. I, I, I don't know. I don't believe it, but... 1885. I do think the Benz Patent motor wagon should get the, uh, the the credit for the first car. Right. Yeah. Because I, you know, as cool as it is to say that uh, that 1771 crash is is the first car crash. I don't know if we could really qualify that. I don't as know. A I car. guess I guess you could look back into like some of Da Vinci's first uh, working models and things. Right. And say that was the first car. Right. Which a lot of people really think that was the first vehicle. And then you know, I'm sure that some of those bumped into something, a tree or a you know, rock or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, he's testing these. Um, is that the first car crash? I don't know. That's why, that's why some of these things on this list kind of bug me just a little bit. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the engine types? What do you think about the idea of the, the first straight engine being the 1903 Naper and Son? What I'll, do you think about that? I'll buy that. You'll buy that? Yeah, buy, I'll buy that, that for a dollar? I mean, yeah, I'll buy that. And there's a lot of these that, you know, I, I think that you can trace these back and, and make sure that, you know, this is the first production V8. This is the first, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 12 cylinder, the 16 cylinder, or the first type with, uh, you know, aluminum cylinder heads or, or, um, I don't know, the cycle engines, you know, things like that, that, you know, whatever, whatever the category may be, the, uh, the type of engine may be, I think you can go back and say that it was the one that was first used in a production car and you can, you can date that. So now the first one built, that's a little tougher because then you go back to whoever's working on these things on their kitchen, t- you know, kitchen counter, oh, yeah. in the garage, whatever. Uh-huh. They may have had a functioning model. They just didn't put it in a functioning vehicle. Right. And, they just kept it on that wood block. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, okay, so. Let's move on just a, a little bit. How about sure, that? We'll yeah. kind of let's mix these up a bit. Okay. All right. So let's say, uh, how about the first um, uh, first car theft? You want to talk about that? First car theft. Yeah. I'd love to hear about right. the first car theft. Paris, France, eighteen ninety six, and that was apparently right after the uh, right after the Benz Pad <laughs> motorway. So so the cars are invented, cars are stolen. That's the way it goes, right? Wow. And um, I guess it was it was a Baron's car that was stolen by a mechanic who took it out for pretty much just a joyride, really. Uh-huh. Uh, because, you know, these brand new things, and the mechanic says, you know, I'm going to take this out for test drive without him knowing, without the Baron knowing, uh, which is probably not a good idea. But um, anyways, first car theft is credited to uh, this Baron, and I won't even attempt 
the, uh, the last name, but his car was stolen by his mechanic. And then uh, shortly thereafter, the first motoring fatality happened in August of 1896, mm-hmm. uh, and it was at the Crystal Palace in London, and it was a woman by the name of Bridget Driscoll of Croydon, and apparently she was run over by a guy named Arthur Edsel at a speed of just four miles per hour, Ben. Now, wow. I, I don't know how somebody gets run over by a car that's only traveling four miles per hour. When we think about how fast cars travel today, I can understand somebody getting in the way. Well, uh, if we cast our minds back to the time, she probably wasn't dressed for running. Probably not. Um, could have been a slip and fall thing. You know, could have yeah. slipped and fell right in front of the car. That could have happened. Yeah, and uh, as much as I would like to say she wouldn't have heard it coming, clearly she would have. Definitely. Uh, I don't know what to tell you, man. I do have the uh, one of what's claimed to be the first charges for driving under the influence, or DWI. When was that? Apparently, it, the first arrest for driving under the influence happened in 1897. My gosh, you know, the, the early days of the automobile, Ben, it's like everything happened all at once. Everything happened in a week or Eight, something. Did you say 1897? Yeah, okay. so uh, a London cabbie crashed his electric taxi. <laughs> Electric taxi, Scott, Very while funny. he was, while he was found to be intoxicated and he was arrested and he was given a fine of, are you ready? 20 shillings. I don't have any idea how much that translates to. I know to, I should have done the inflation. I would think, uh, yeah, who knows, but uh, I would, I would say that that's probably not a, not a huge fine. No, no, it's but, not. Uh, it's but they, not but they didn't know what to charge him with probably initially, right? I mean, that's, a, yeah. that's the thing. Like it wasn't really a thing yet until he had been arrested. And I'm not too familiar with uh, drinking history of London, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that he wasn't the only drunk cab driver. I would assume that, too. Uh, all right. So first, uh, I've got some cool uh, technology stuff, right? Okay. Uh, first mobile telephone call. Oh, when was that? 1946. 46? No kidding. Story. Car phones in 1946. Well, ah, here we go. Okay. Car phone versus mobile telephone call. Uh, 1946, these, uh, this team of some bright eggs at Bell Labs made the first mobile telephone call. They used a phone that they had just mounted under the dashboard of a car. Uh, so this was only able to take, only able to make three calls. They're, like, there were only three numbers it could call in the metro area where they did this experiment. Oh, I see. But it wasn't just the first car phone. It was de facto the first mobile phone. Ever. 1946. Yeah. Way early. All so right. it was probably, you know, later in Vietnam and, and uh, they had the, the backpack phones. Oh, sure. They had to crank to get them going. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I always felt sorry for that poor guy. The field phones? Yeah, we had to yeah. carry the field phone. Yeah, that's I guess that big. was a Bell Lab thing in a car. How about, uh, let's move up, uh, well, actually, we're going to move back, believe it or not, the first supercharged car, yeah. 1921 Mercedes. Um, let's see. Then we got the first supercharged and turbocharged car, which I think is pretty interesting because it's a combination of the two technologies. And it was in a, um, a car that was produced for homologation purposes for Group B, which is really cool. We've talked Whoa, about in yeah, the past, yeah. right? So this was the 1985 Lancia Delta S4, uh, the homologation special, which, which they produced 200 road cars total. You know, some of those were the race cars. But again, supercharged and turbocharged at the same time in, wow. in 1985. First time ever. So that, uh, that's amazing. I don't know what to follow up with that. Well, how uh, about, uh, how about the first parking meter? I mean, see, okay, we're jumping all over. Yeah, let's jump over. All over the place. There's no, uh, there's no rhyme or reason here, but, um, Oklahoma City, USA claims to have the first parking meter and it was installed in, uh, July of 1935. 
So pretty early on, they just needed to find a way to, you know, raise some revenue and they thought parking would be a way, but they needed to do parking where they couldn't have somebody out there collecting money. Yeah. So this is a way to automatically do that. And of course, then the parking meter maids, I guess, would be the, uh, the result of this, you know, people walking around handing out tickets for even more revenue generation, people that were avoiding paying the meter. And, and later that Tuesday, the first parking meter theft occurred. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of swearing. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah. all right. First hybrid. Okay. Now this is, a matter of contention, to say the least, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we have one list that says uh, the first gas-electric hybrid was uh, an 1899 loaner Porsche, and it was called Simper Vivas, built by a 25-year-old Ferdinand Porsche. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, generally accepted as the first one. Right. The reason I say that this can be contentious is if we're just talking about hybrids in general. Oh. So this is a gas-electric hybrid, People aren't arguing that, but then we have the first mass-produced hybrid car, which everybody knows this one, the Toyota Prius, yeah. generally. 97, right? Yeah. 1997. Mm-hmm. So long, long time in the future. So, uh, well, man, 1899 to 1997. So we, um, 98 years between the two, really. Yeah. Uh, if you're talking about gas, gas, uh, what would you say, gas electric? Yeah, gas yeah. electric. Okay, so mass-produced versus single production, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the only difference there. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow that up with one that you may be surprised by, Ben. All right. The first four fuel hybrid car, so accepts four different types of, uh, of fuel. I mean, bioethanol, hydromethane, gasoline, and LPG. Do you know what vehicle this is? Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? 
So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just take a wild guess. Uh, Anything. It is... Okay, why not? Well, let's play the game. I'll play your reindeer game, Scott. Is it a ranchero? No, it is not. It is a 2010 <laughs> Monte Carlo automobile quadrifuel. Monte Carlo, Ben. In I know. 2010. I so, know. I knew this. I thought I was going to get to make some more. <laughs> My next guess was Canyon Arrow. <laughs> Canyon Arrow would be a good guess. I would accept that. Uh, so this, uh, this is great. If you guys haven't checked out our two-part episode on Monte Carlo, check those out. It's a labor of love. Oh, I think, yeah, definitely. It was a uh, long podcast, lots of history, yeah. good history, and more than we had ever anticipated to come out of the Monte Carlo, right? Yes, I mean, way I, more. We I don't know why was... we we didn't think that, but we didn't think early on there would be a whole lot there. There was more than you could imagine. I thought it was a there and done, there and done thing for us. Um, the first, now you mentioned this in the opening. We should go ahead and talk about this. The first two body car. Oh, yeah, yeah, like a segmented Two car, section, right? Yeah. yeah, this is so strange. It was like a pivot point, right? Yeah, and it looks it looks so fascinating that I would want to drive it just to experience the drive. I wouldn't want to own it. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it would be a tough one to drive. It would be a tough one to back up in, right, to yeah. back out in parking lots, because uh, the pivot point is immediately behind the engine. So you're sitting behind the pivot point. It's like you're. It looks like you're pushing a small trailer. Yes. When, in fact, that's the engine compartment. Yeah, that's the 1958 Sir Vival. And then uh, there was a great note by the Jalopnik author who wrote that. And he said, get it? Survival? Ah, yeah. But you know what? This is even more strange because even though that, that, that front engine is there and you think that you would think that that would be what's driving the vehicle, right. but it's pulling you along, it's rear-wheel drive. Which, first off, what? Yeah. Why? How? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got, it, apparently it's got some kind of crazy swivel on the drive shaft, but it, uh, it does have rear wheel drive, front engine, which is again separated by this pivot point. It's so strange. The vehicle is really, really strange. And that's the reason this type of thing never, you know, took off. I yeah. Guess. And it was supposed to be, from what I understand, it was supposed to be a, a safety measure sorts. Um, and there was, sold as one of the safest cars in the world. I don't understand that. I mean, unless you can detach from the engine if it's on fire or something like right. that. Right. It mean, was unsuccessfully yeah. sold as one of the And you can't, cars. obviously you can't do that. How about um, the first steering wheel, Ben? First steering wheel. First steering wheel. Now, you would think that this would be in 1896, right? When the, or 1895 when the first car came around. But remember, they had those rudder steer uh, type while, systems. Yeah. Like, you know, with the one handle, it's so complicated looking. Like the day du tone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Strange thing. But it wasn't until 1900 that Packard came out with the steering wheel, the round steering wheel that we think of. And that is, obviously, that's the way to go. I mean, that's the, the um, I, I don't know how to put it, like the... Uh, the most concise way to steer a car. Maybe that's not the best way to say it. But. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It's the most uh, 
efficacious way. Intuitive, I guess, maybe. Intuitive is a good Intuitive, I think. And that that translates over into even boats and, you know, any type of vehicle that has a steering wheel. I mean, it seems like a very intuitive way to to direct a vehicle whatever way you want to go. Mm. I mean, I know other cars still use joysticks or other vehicles, I should say, like those Bobcat Skidster type, you know, vehicles use two two controls. And you mentioned the Saab with the joystick controls. Mm -hmm. Other ones have... um, I want to say that there was like a, a car that had a single joystick controller at one point. Yes. Uh, there, well, are you talking more modern cars? Or are you talking like the rudder? Design? Well, you know, it's a concept car from maybe the 1980s oh, yeah. or something like that. Uh, you know? Yeah, you're right. There is, there, uh, there's more than one. Yeah, I think so. But anyways, you know, all these things weren't really standardized until, you know, the early part of the 1900s and, and the steering wheel from Packard just happened to be one of the items that went along with all that. Packard also, uh, the first U.S. car to offer AC systems hmm. in 1939. 1939. That's pretty early, you would think, for uh, for AC systems. Now, I've heard, this is strange. Okay. I heard that before that time, you could pull up to a, a fueling station, a gas station, and you would crack the window, and it would hook up this big tube to the window, and it would cool off the interior of your car as you fueled up, and then you would roll up the window, and whatever was inside the car would stay inside the car for as long as it could, you know, and be yeah. sure it's hot. Um, but it would stay cool just for that amount of time, you know, when, as you're driving away. Uh, but it was a nice service that these, uh, these full service stations would provide. Now that's true because we looked at that, didn't you have a picture of that? that uh, you so, showed me. Somewhere a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it was way in our past. It was kind of like a strange invention type thing, but yeah. it was prior to, you know, um, automotive AC systems that were mobile that would stay with mm-hmm. the vehicle. This was like a, a, a um, a system that was permanent at the fuel stations, and you would just hook up to them. You know, when you came in for gas, it was very, yeah. very strange, weird, weird thing. Oh, I've got, I've got some first that I just want to go down in a quick laundry list. All right, let's do and it. I want to hear if you believe them or not. So, nineteen fifteen, Packard creates a handbrake on the driver's left side. First U.S. car to do that. Hmm, okay. Uh, Studebaker, first U.S. car to offer windshield washers. Nineteen thirty-seven. Um, power brakes. Uh, came around 1933, but I don't have a specific, uh, manufacturer for that. Buick, apparently, first power windows, 1950. That's the Y job, right? Yeah. Yeah. Harley <laughs> Earl's car. I think we mentioned yep. that one in the last podcast, right? Yes. Very, very cool. That's a, that's a neat invention. Of course, one that stuck around. Everybody's got power windows now. Mm. Seems like it anyways. Yeah. I think most people, uh, either, have power windows or purposely own an older car. Yeah, Listen to states. Um, all right. The first drive across America. You know this one, Scott. It's an oldie but a goodie. Oh, yeah. That's got to be the uh, Horatio Jackson, right? Yes, sir. Dr. Horatio Jackson. Doc, that's doctor. And, of course, their dog. Uh, that we have an entire podcast about that. We don't have to. Yeah. We don't have to say anything else other than look up our episode, World's First Road Trip. Sure. Bud the dog and his doggles. Remember those? Mm-hmm. Oh, the first. U.S. cross-country road trip. Sorry, because remember, the first road trip uh, is in Germany, right? Sure, that was, uh, um, oh, who was that? That was, that was the, his uh, wife, his, wasn't Yeah, it? yeah, the uh, the Mercedes inventor's wife. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, can't can't come, come up with the name right off the top of my head, but, um, oh, man, how about this, Ben? Right. Airbags. Airbags. Now, you would think that airbags are a relatively new invention, right? They haven't been around all that long. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
I guess recent past, maybe. I mean, not not as far back as they really go. They go all the way back to 1974. Forty years officially I as know. of this year. General Motors came out with airbags in 1974. And, you know, this is one of those things, again, where it's like you know, the, the first airbags offered on a regular production vehicle, and that was the option on the 1974 right, model, right? yeah. And they had front airbags. It was on Cadillacs, Buicks, Oldsmobiles. Um, and I think an Electra was mm-hmm. another vehicle that they came out on. Uh, but the other first for airbags uh, came from the 1987 Porsche 944 Turbo, and then had the first dual airbags. Mm-hmm. And then the 1994 Volvo 850, which was the first car with side impact airbags. So, you know, they kind of advance along the way, and you'll find that, you know, there's also first for, um, I think it's automotive seatbelt airbags. Have you ever seen those? Oh, yeah. And then yeah. there's exterior airbags for pedestrian safety, which is uh-huh. another odd thing that's kind of coming around now. I think there's cars that actually have those now. Really? Uh, yeah. There's. Some, I thought it was going to be a flash in the pan. Well, some strange exterior pedestrian safety stuff that, you know, we haven't really talked about too mm. much in depth. Uh, that's a teaser for what, an upcoming thing. What about heated seats? What about heated seats? Yeah, do you know heated seats? These uh, uh, these go back way farther than I thought because uh, I thought these were like a nineteen late nineteen nineties, early two thousands invention. Yeah, but uh, Cadillac, right? Yeah, how far back? See, okay, I, hmm, I don't know. I just put Cadillac heated seats. I'll tell you what, Ben, it goes right. back way far. Nineteen sixty six. Sixty six. Sixty six. Yeah, and the thing is, I think that they were just kind of continually on. I think they were heated all the time. They weren't really switched on and off. I think until later. But it was an option on the 75 series models of, of Cadillacs in 1966. And the first, um, to have like the first ventilated seats, I guess. If you, so ventilated front passenger seats were, uh-huh. were the Saab 95 in 1998. So, you know, oh. it, it goes, it jumps way up in time. But, um, and I know Saab, you know, kind of gets this, uh, this reputation for having the first seats in 1971 that were heated, but right. I think that those were the ones that were able to be switched on and off. The Cadillac just had them on, I believe, permanently. I, I think that's the way it goes. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With that, uh, sorry, Sky, I forgot for a second. I was getting so into all these first. That I, I know. It gets confusing, you know, with, yeah. the, with the different makes and models and the qualifiers and everything. Yeah. But, but I'll tell you what, the first NAV system. You would uh, think that that is, again, you would think that's a late 90s, early 2000s type thing, right? Because, you know, we, we tend to think of it as um, going along with GPS, right? Right, and then going along with mobile technology yeah, in general. And, and that really, and GPS started happening in the, the late 80s, and I want to mention that in just a moment. But the first navigation system that really isn't a GPS system that, that looks like it, though, when you see a picture of this thing, it's called the, the Honda Electrogyrocator. Yeah, and it's I, I feel like it's so much more MacGyver level clever than uh an orthodox GPS. It really is. I mean the way it works is it has a gas bubble gyroscope and it detects movement and mechan and has this mechanical connection to the transmission and it senses the distance and the speed that you travel mm-hmm. in order to figure out where you are on this set of maps. These, these like uh these overlay maps that are inside the uh the unit. And it's really crazy. It almost looks like um it looks like something out of a boat, like a fish finder almost, is what it, it reminds does. me That's of. really good. Yeah, because it, it's not a, um, you know, it's not a great LCD s- display at all. No, it's not like an 8-inch HD screen that right. you know, we find in new cars or anything. It's uh, it's this uh, almost a primitive-looking type thing, but it's really cool. It looks a lot like the, the made-up type inventions that they would have in like a Bond car. Yes. Or a um, a Green Hornet invention. Yeah. Something like that, right? It, it has a, a kind of a funny look to it, but it's a real functioning thing and it's called the electrogyrocator it's from 1981 yeah it goes way back and that prior that's prior to gps or global positioning satellites Mm. um and the first car that had the a true gps satellite navigation system was the 1986 toyota soarer gt limited and uh i guess man that was in 1986 that's uh it's only five years later right so it caught up the technology caught up pretty quick which makes me a little sad because I was I was impressed by the uh, by everything except the name of the gyrocator. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, it's it's uh, it is impre- impressing that they could manage to make an entirely mechanical device. That's that's what baffles me about it. You yeah. Know? Well, you'd have to have very specific maps. For the area that you're going to be traveling in, right? Because you can't that go. That is a drawback. You couldn't drive off the map, or, or actually, no, I'm sorry, you could drive off the map. I but guess. But then it would just tell you what direction you were going and how long you've been doing that. Ah, oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. So uh, that would be handy as well. But uh, we've got another one that probably dates back a little bit further than people think. Uh, Scott first retracting hardtop, right? Yeah, yeah, and this one goes way back to 1957, um, and Ford with the Ford Fairlane 500. 
And man, this is a big top on this thing, Ben. It's a, it's a fully retractable hard top yeah. that breaks in, in a segment. It looks like it breaks right above the driver. And then the whole thing, the whole shebang goes right into the trunk, oh. way into the trunk. So the trunk, which is enormous, by the way. Yeah. Has zero luggage capacity when this thing is folded away. Right. A slight, uh, a slight disadvantage of the engineering, but still very clever, uh, innovation and, would only work on a car the size of the Skyliner. And, and prior to that point, yeah, because the the uh, just the the sheer mechanics of the thing. You know, yeah. in 1957, you got to imagine the size of the motors that ran this thing, mm-hmm. and uh, and the technology isn't like you know the micro switches of today. I, have we talked about retractable hardtops in modern day retractable hardtops? We've talked. To, I don't know if it was been on air. I think maybe we were talking about the German company. We did. We did. We talked about the German company that was known purely for innovating. Hard, uh, convertibles and hardtops. Okay, very good. Well, in, in, uh, the, let's see, in the 1996, Mitsubishi came out with the first, I guess what they call the first modern day retractable hardtop. And that was in the 3000 GT Spider. And it had, uh, used an ASC McLaren design two-piece folding roof. And you'll find that all the, uh, almost all, if you look at almost all of the retractable hardtops of today, like you look at the Volkswagens that do it, you look at the Chryslers that do it, you know, some of the, the, uh, the popular modern Retractable hardtops, they all have yeah. a very, very similar design. They all come from a similar company or the same company, maybe even. And I think ASC has a lot to do with that still. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to look up who the manufacturer is who does that again. But um, very, very similar for every lo- every model, every make, it seems like. I'm skipping around. First four-wheel drive performance car. 1966, Scott, the Jensen FF. Now, that surprised me completely because i don't think of performance vehicles in four-wheel drive other than the uh other than the, the, audi, quattro. the audi quattro and that was mm-hmm. in 1981 mm-hmm. so that's uh it's kind of kind of a, uh, what another uh 14 15 years 15 years yeah and it uh it was described as essentially uh an interceptor mark three with five inches added to the wheelbase and mm-hmm. a transfer case yeah and you know what i i just got my uh my head wrapped around the the audi quattro as being the first one i've, I've always assumed that was the first one i did but, too but looking at the uh looking at the jensen ff and i mean i have to see it in action i guess to see what you know what it does really but i mean if they call it a performance car you know it's going to be a performance car now also, you know, it's not four-wheel drive that we're talking about. We're just talking about, like, something that's a, I mean, off-road, rather. Right. We're talking about something that is a performance-enhanced system. So, you know, that's the qualifier there on that one, is that the Jensen apparently was a performance vehicle versus a car that could also go off-road. You know, like right. um, some of the, the, the tougher, you know, higher-up vehicles that, you know, were more suited to uh, camping and, and climbing mountains or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there were a few of those around. Yeah, that is true. It's, um, it. It sounds a little bit counterintuitive to think, you know, four-wheel drive on a performance car. Why? But the but it does enhance the abilities of the car. Yeah, and there were cars again. There were cars that could, you know, do the four-wheel drive thing. Like Subaru had cars out that, you know, were a clunky system. I think is how they described the system. You know, <laughs> right. you'd, have to, you'd have to stop and then, you know, activate. Uh, you know, you have to pull up different levers and and shift in different manners. And you know, it would just it's more like shifting into like four-wheel high or four-wheel low in, a, in an older Jeep. Yeah, you know, that's that's the the process that I would think. Pretty of. good call, man. Yeah, something similar to that, right? Now, here's one that I think I've just got a few more. Really, okay. I mean, actually, I've got I've got hundreds more, but <laughs> I think I'm just going to cover just a few more. And uh, one of them I want to talk about is the keyless entry or remote keyless entry, rather. Mm-hmm. And you would think that you know this has been around again. I would guess maybe 
10, 12 years, something like that at the most. Oh, Because no it seems sir. like most cars don't have that, right? I mean, or didn't have that until that point. Mm-hmm. But uh, how, how far does this one go back, Ben? This one goes back to 1982 on the Renault Fuego. Yeah, 82. Yeah. And I would never, ever have guessed that the Renault Fuego was the one that came out with uh, with the first remote keyless entry. Yeah, I mean, it, but it's, it's an unlikely true. It's an unlikely source. Well, if you think about the technology and the way it works, uh, it's it's sort of like the invention of the first remote control. It's not as crazy or out of reach as it sounds. Mm-hmm. So it's just a wireless transmitter. Those existed already. They just happened to be the first to throw it into an automobile in that application. Stroke of genius. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, and, and this system, I mean, it looks very much unchanged. I mean, if you look at the remote, it looks very similar to well, what you'd find today. Up. Yeah. Exactly. So you think about the Fuego, you think about um, the Renault Alliance from that day, mm-hmm. you know, the, the these French cars, these small Renault French cars, and you would never think that something innovative or, or crazy came out of that, that design. But in fact, there was something, and it was this, this keyless entry. Strange, strange turn of events, I guess, in that one. Now, this is one that will be exciting for a lot of our listeners. First turbocharged production car, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, that one, I'm surprised that it took this long, really. See, that's one. Of, this is one of the only things on the list where you say, I'm surprised it took that long. Yeah, because turbo had been around for a while. I, I'll have to look yeah. up the date when uh, turbo first came around. But the first turbo production car wasn't until 1962. And it was the Oldsmobile F85 Jetfire. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a great idea, of course. I mean, the first, I guess... Turbo, now that I think about it, Turbo's been around since something like 1905. Yeah, um, that's the first patent, right? Yeah, first patent wasn't the first application, really. I mean, they had the idea, mm-hmm. had it all sketched out, and, you know, the way that it worked. Um, I don't think that it was actually thrown into a production car until, well, until 1962. Right, and a lot of people will say that, um, will cite the Monza, right, as the, uh, the Chevrolet Corvair. Mm-hmm. Um, turbocharged Chevrolet Corvair as the first one in the game, but... True story, Amaze Your Friends, the Oldsmobile F85, beat the Monza by just a couple months. Yeah, and one note that, uh, you know, on this list that we're, we're kind of reading over here, GM was making a rear-engine, turbocharged, air-cooled, flat-six car 12 years prior to when Porsche was making its 911 Turbo. So a lot of people uh-huh. credit Porsche with that type of engine setup and that layout, you know, with the 911. But this is actually, you know, 12 years prior to that. So go back to 1962, and you think you know in 1974 Porsche was doing this, and how you know dramatic and uh, and innovative that was. Uh-huh. Well, we can go back to Oldsmobile in 1962, and they're doing the same thing. Scott, I just have I don't know. I guess it's getting time for us to wrap up, which which is which is a little sad because we have so much stuff we we're not going to get to. I mean, I I have I literally have hundreds of these things. I mean, seatbelts, electric starters. I mean, stuff that you would call I guess just other. You know, yeah. some some really interesting ones, and I hope maybe, you know, maybe we can drag some of these out later. And, you know, the good thing is that a lot of these relate to the topics that we're talking about. So mm-hmm. if any of these, you know, you know, come up in our memory, I guess, as we're talking about other vehicles throughout the year, throughout 2014, we'll be able to go back to this list of firsts, maybe, and, uh, and include some of those little facts. How about that? Okay, you know what? I will make that bargain because I'm frantically... Going through my notes for the first crash test dummies and other things of interest. Okay, that's one I think we do need to include. How about we do that and we'll just, we'll end it with that. How about that? Uh, all right. Okay. So Wayne State University in Detroit uh, starts using crash test dummies in 1930. Yeah. In the yeah. 30s. Early right? on. But the strange thing about this is, and that's not maybe, you know, terribly unusual, right? You would think, well, of course they're using crash sure, test dummies, right? Sure, safe. 
these are live humans. These are guys that just volunteered and said, we want to find out how the, the how crashes affect the human body. We're going to volunteer for these studies. And there are people that volunteer, I know, for a lot of different medical studies and things like yeah, that. Yeah, even so, today. I mean, to, but to volunteer yourself to be smashed into a wall or have another car crash into you, mm-hmm. terribly dangerous. And think about cars in the 1930s. <laughs> right. And uh, the guy who was heading up a lot of this research, Lawrence Patrick, uh, you know, if he couldn't get volunteers or if he felt it was unethical or unsafe, he experimented on himself, which is why I think to this day, doesn't he hold the record for the most car accidents? Something like that. Yeah, he's uh, <laughs> he's definitely up there. And another twist to this whole thing. And Spoiler you know, alert. You yeah. know the big twist, right? Yeah. They often use cadavers. So corpses were used to test automobiles. Um, you know, way back when, you know, that, you know, they dropped them from elevator shafts. They would, uh, see how impact, cause they couldn't do some of the, like, the impacts to head, the head region. Or, right. Things that would c- clearly harm a living person. Exactly. Yeah. They had to use, uh, cadavers and then, and then base their studies, you know, f- on what they would find afterwards. And I guess the dirty little secret has been, they still do that today. Dun, dun, dun. Done. Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of people probably knew that, but, uh, you I know. I don't think so, Scott. Oh, uh, maybe. Maybe. A lot I, of people don't know that. And but. it's, it's still done. They don't talk about it. They don't publicize it. Right. But, but cadavers, corpses are still done today. I mean, these are bodies that are, you know, willed to science, you know, that say we'd like to be used for experimentation. I don't know how all that works out. We'll have to figure that out. But, right. um, yeah, all the big automakers still do it because that is the one way to test how a real life human, well, real dead human um, <laughs> reacts oh, in, in a in a true accident right and there are there are a lot of uh, technological innovations being made with crash test dummies or you know with other kind of mannequin things for everything from CPR sure to you know uh, even simulating heart attack but the problem is that when it comes to the body entire you can't beat the real thing exactly and Ben those you got to think about it this way too those corpses have sa- saved Countless lives. I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives in uh, in you know what they've proven through all this testing. So you know they're very, very important. Yes, and with this unexpected twist, mm-hmm. I didn't know we were going to end up on that one. It's uh, a ghoulish twist. It's a ghoulish twist for the new year. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to close out with some uh, listener mail? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, Scott. So Johnny writes to us. Uh, Johnny is a newer listener and. Um, he says some very nice things about our show. Thank you, Johnny, but we'll skip to the good stuff. Uh, he says, I consider myself a car guy. I've had many fun cars, one of which was a 1996 Trans Am and another being a 1991 MR2 Turbo. Unfortunately, says Johnny, a family of four lifestyle caused me to put my impractical sports car days in the rearview mirror of my more family-oriented Toyota 4Runner. Oh. At least for the time being, he says. Uh, when I get the funds together, I'd like to get a fun and sporty third car, and I was wondering if you have ever considered doing a podcast on some of the affordable mid-engine rear-wheel drive cars like the Toyota MR2, the Pontiac Fiero, the Porsche Boxster, etc. Um, he said, I like the podcast on the Miata. However, I am 6'3", uh, and I've never really fit well into one. You know what? I think he just named all of the semi-affordable mid-engine rear-wheel drive cars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah So, yeah. but, you know, that's a great idea. I think that's a, Johnny, that's a really good idea. Definitely sporty, definitely fun to drive. Mid-engine cars are so much fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, again, lots of room for, uh, you know, someone with long legs, apparently. Johnny must be tall. 
Um, yeah. What did he say? 6'2", 6'3", something six, like three, that? 6'3", yeah. 6'3", that's pretty tall. Which is funny because one of my uh, close friends in college, a guy named Nathan, is probably about around 6'3", a little over 6", and he drove uh, an MR2. I mean, we called it Mr. 2, mm-hmm. and he had to get rid of it. It was an albatross around his neck because he got parking tickets all the time. Oh, okay, that was the problem? The, you know... Y- you would think that it would be a speeding issue or something like that. I mean, in a car like that, right? Oh, yeah. Well, he was a pretty good driver, I guess. Um, and he's still alive. He's a pretty good driver. Mm-hmm. But he just couldn't handle... Um, he he would still get tickets whenever he was a few miles over. Yeah. And he would he would park... I don't know. Maybe he just parked illegally oh, everywhere. What a, what a shame to have to get rid of that car, though, because of that. Because... Man, what, those are fantastic cars. That oh, was, yeah. That was, a, I mean, the first generation, the the, uh, the later ones, the kind of smoothed out version. I don't know yeah. what, the, Gen 2, Gen 3, I don't know which sure. it is. I'll have to look it up. But um, beautiful cars. They were a lot of fun. Yeah. So, Johnny, that sounds like a great suggestion. Obviously, Scott and I are into it. While we go out to look at some more upcoming episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Drop by our website, carstuffshow.com. Let us know what you think. You can check out videos, blogs, podcasts, and more. And uh, feel free to hit us up on Facebook or Twitter, where we are Carstuff, H-S-W. Or, you know what? You can always write to us directly. Our email address is carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.